Hey y'all, Nevin here. If you've been riding along with me for a while, you might recall that in our first season we paid a visit to Galveston. Once a destination for Gilded Age tycoons, and perhaps the greatest town of significance between New Orleans and San Francisco, its influence ceded to Houston following the Great Storm of 1900, and today its population doesn't even crack the top 50 of Texas cities. But while you'll often hear people like me argue that Austin is really a small town with growing pains, some locals might tell you that Galveston is actually a big city disguised as a small town. Much of this is owed to its diverse immigrant history, which we'll get into today by exploring its Sicilian side while enjoying some spaghetti, sausage, and sandwiches. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Just going to take a quick moment to let my friend and fellow Texan Vincent Strange tell you about his excellent show, Gone Cold. That is a must for those of you, like me, who appreciate a good true crime story. Vincent? Texas has a reputation for being tough on crime, but beneath the surface, buried in the darkness that only those affected by tragedy know, is the reality of a flawed and insufficient justice system. More than 60% of violent crimes in Texas go unsolved and many are at the hands of offenders who should have never had the opportunity, madmen who slipped through the cracks. On Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, you'll find in-depth accounts of unsolved homicides, missing persons cases, and other mysteries throughout Texas. From the historic and perplexing case of the 1948 disappearance of a Denton co-ed, Virginia Carpenter, to the unthinkable, the Orange, Texas abduction and murder of four-year-old Denaria Finley in 2002. You can find and subscribe to Gone Cold, Texas True Crime, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, Vincent. And now, let's get back to the show. Hard, you know, I'm 92. It's hard for me to remember a lot of this stuff. I'm just getting older and uglier, that's it, so... <laughs> One of Galveston's most venerable institutions is Sonny's Place, which has been serving the coldest beer on the island since 1944. Announced by its original red and green neon sign at the corner of 19th and Avenue L, enter this unfussy, wood-paneled dive for lunch or dinner on any given day, and you'll likely find Lawrence Puccetti holding court from his corner booth. I really enjoy people, and I... Only thing I do now is come down here and try to make them laugh and tell jokes and all like that. Uh, And like this, did you hear about the kidnapping in Mexico? You didn't? Well, he woke up. (laughs) I'm so (laughs) A pale-faced Korean War veteran, Lawrence was raised upstairs from where we're sitting and started serving from behind the bar in 1951. But despite the years he's put in here, he still answers to the nickname Junior and tells me he's not to be confused with his older brother, for whom his parents named this place. Well, my older brother was uh, named Sonny. And when he was in the Navy, the oldest brother, and when my dad had to have a name for it, so he called it Sonny's Place. So, now, people often ask me if I'm Sonny. I tell them no, but I'm bright, so... Still, he picked up the reins of ownership following his father's passing and cooked for years after his mother suddenly died in 1967. 
Those duties now fall on the shoulders of his tall 60-something son, Richard, who, after finishing lunch service, exits the kitchen to fill me in on a little history. This originally was a speakeasy when it first, when it first opened. Uh, somewhere around 1930, somebody talked my grandfather into raising the building, and the business they put in was, in the front was a poultry market, and the back was gambling and liquor, and a series of these came and went Somewhere around 1944, one of them got lippy with my one of the tenants got lippy with my grandfather, and uh, he kicked them all out. And uh, so they, my my grandfather took over the bar. So people would be drinking or having a good time, and they go, uh, "Wow, sure, I'm hungry." And my grandmother would go upstairs and cook something, and then bring it down. And it just it was it became an endless thing of going upstairs and cooking, going upstairs and cooking, and word just spread. And that's how we got into the bar and restaurant business. Today, the menu is expansive, with bar snacks, fully loaded burgers, and even a chicken fried steak sandwich called the Artery Clogger. But perhaps the biggest clue to this place's roots lands on the second page, where their spaghetti and meat sauce is announced with an exclamation point. And my parents are Italian. My father was from uh, Luca, Italy. My mother was from Sicily. And... uh, if we didn't have Italian spaghetti of some sort, I'd think I was dead. My mother cooked spaghetti every Sunday. Uh, you know, I don't speak Italian because my mother followed two different dialects. They met here in Galveston. Now I learned to cuss in Italian because that's whatever they, only time they spoke Italian in this household was when they was cussing. Junior's parents were among more than four million who left Italy for the United States between the 1880s and 1920s. And while a great many of these people famously followed migratory patterns along the eastern seaboard, Richard says it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that his family chose to make a home for themselves under the Lone Star flag. Well, first of all, you know, you you have a, uh, wherever you have a port city, you're gonna have Italians. And the water's very important. And especially, it's, it's easier to get rid of the bodies. (laughs) As you might tell, Richard takes after his father in the joke department. But minus the salty humor, he's not wrong in tying Galveston's diversity to its port past. After all, an estimated 750,000 immigrants from around the world first touched American soil here between 1839 and 1920. This history, local Doran Glenn stresses, is crucial to understanding Galveston's cultural fabric today. Back at the turn of the century, the port of Galveston was a more important port than the port of Houston. The city of Galveston was more bustling. It was the Wall Street of the South. It was the Ellis Island of the South. But Galveston, people don't quite realize exactly how much immigration and naturalization activity Uh, was here on the island because we had so many different groups coming in and deciding and choosing to, to stay here and to settle here, not just to move on from Galveston, because Galveston did offer so many opportunities at the, at the turn of the century. Officially incorporated in 1839, Galveston essentially sits on a sandbar that straddles its namesake bay in the Gulf of Mexico. Thanks to its natural harbor and the business of cotton exports, 
It quickly became a prosperous cosmopolitan center that enjoyed a trade monopoly as Texas's gateway. And as a growing city in need of goods and services, it also proved a desirable landing place for immigrants seeking work and opportunity. Among those foreign newcomers were Germans, Russian Jews, Greeks, Poles, Czechs, Italians, and Sicilians. That last group in particular, Doran says, had backgrounds that may have prepared them well for life on the Texas coast. If you have come from a place that is surrounded by water, you know the good and the bad. And I think that those from even a century ago that were coming from uh, some seaside uh, or, or portside city, that they would long for something that would at least remind them a little bit of the same type of, of area. While Galveston provided an adoptive home for many immigrants from central and northern Italy, its waters are key to understanding why, by the early 20th century, most of its Italian citizenry hailed from the Sicilian provinces of Catania, Palermo, and Agrigento. Skilled in fishing, shrimping, and other seafaring trades, many of these displaced countrymen followed opportunity here, after first landing and working in Florida and Louisiana, while others, like the parents of native Galvestonian Altropia, followed family here directly. Both of my parents were from Sicily, from a little fishing village called Acicrezza. It was a fishing village, so they went where the fish were at. Basically, that's what we, there was a group of Italians that always hung around together, and a lot of them were shrimpers, and then eventually got into the grocery store business. Tropia's was open from 1959 to 1981. They were just one of many Italian corner stores whose presence on Galveston's dense, walkable, grid-patterned streets were ubiquitous. As early as 1906, the city directory listed half of all retail groceries as Italian-owned. And I'll suggest that by his childhood, those numbers had only grown. Alderici Brothers, uh, Dima's, Mrs. Wilkinson Grocery Store, Micheletti, Minotti's, Niambra's Grocery Stores. Jesse's Food Market, sometimes a grocery store would have a specialty. We had a butcher that would hand cut all the steaks and roasts, and then we had a deli with all the different lunch meats, and, uh, and we called uh, some soprazzata, we would sell some provolone cheese, and we would sell some uh, mortadella and Coca-Cola. And later, my mother, actually, we would buy the actual Sicilian green olives, where she would crack every one of them and put them in a big glass container and spice them up with the olive oil and some other spices, Italian spices that she actually put together. And we would sell those on the counter in the butcher shop, too, for people. Our specialty in the butcher shop, where we were very well known for, my father was actually made homemade Italian sausage. One who remembers Trapi as well is Robert Mahoval. A photographer and native of Galveston, he ran many errands for his parents and remembers their house-made sausage in particular. Uh, growing up, uh, Altropia, my, my parents bought all their groceries from a little corner grocery store for all the tugboats. My father was in the tugboat business. We had four tugboats. We'd buy $2,200 worth of groceries a week to feed these guys on these tugboats. And so that's how we got to know them so well. We, we bought all the groceries from them from the time I was born till probably, you know, I was 25, 30 years old. 
And one of the things that my father loved more than anything was Italian sausage from Tropias. And he learned to cook it all different ways. It was just amazing. Alfio's father uh, would make it by hand. And they had, and then they had big grinders. And so he would uh, mix the pork and, and the seasoning. And I remember, you know, watching him taste it. I mean, he, he's working with this raw meat and he's taking little samples to, to know what it's going to taste like, the finished product, and hand cranking the sausage. And it was so good that really, after his father passed away, I talked to him many times about uh, just going into business just to sell the sausage. He never took me up on it, but uh, I still think it could make it because it was, it was that good. Al continues to make the sausage each Christmas and has shared the secret recipe with his sons and grandkids, but seems happy to keep it as more of a family tradition than moneymaker. Still, he can't help but tell me about the time he surprised his dad by shipping 15 pounds of their sausage to family hero, Formula One race car driver, Mario Andretti. I got a phone call from Mario's secretary. So I spoke with her and she says, I just want to let you know, Mario Andretti said that was the best sausage he's ever had in a long time. I said, really? I said, oh, that's great. I said, matter of fact, if you hang on, he wants to talk with you. And my dad, of course, he's on a bandsaw cutting pork chops in the butcher department. I had to stop him from doing that. And uh, I said, wash your hands. I said, you gotta get the telephone. And he says, oh, okay. So he turns off the deal, washes his hands real quick, rinse them off. He gets the phone, he goes, hello. He said, yeah, who is this? Yeah, yeah, right, Mario Andretti, sure, okay. So eventually I had to convince my dad it was Mario Andretti that he was actually talking to. And he was just blown away. And after that, they started talking, they started talking Italian, they, they, they started conversation. And they stayed on the phone for about 45 minutes talking together. They said goodbye, it was great. Not knowing, two months later, we get an order from Mario for 50 pounds of sausage to be sent out 25 pounds to him, 25 pounds to a friend of his. He's got a bet going on. So that was a great, great experience. And Mario, by the way, won the bet <laughs> on the best sausage. Just going to take a quick break to say that if you've been enjoying Vanishing Postcards, chances are you'll also like one of my favorite travel podcasts, Out of Office. It's hosted by Ryan Davis and Kernan Schmidt, best friends and world travelers with a really nice rapport. They're funny, but they're also really nerdy and curious. They go deep into the history and art of the places they travel and go way off the beaten path. I particularly like the recent focus on destinations in Mexico, and their episodes on national parks are more comprehensive than any others I've heard. Search for Out of Office, a travel podcast, wherever you listen. And now, let's get back to the show. Galveston's moment of commercial dominance began to fade in 1914. That was the year President Wilson ceremoniously opened Houston Ship Channel, whose inland location proved safer from natural disasters and more convenient to the state's booming oil fields. Today, you also probably won't hear the Sicilian dialect spoken wandering this city's waterfront. But while Galveston cannot claim a little Italy, ties to the old country persist. Both Al and Robert take communion at historic Sacred Heart Church, where each June descendants dress in red and celebrate the feast of Acitrezza's patron saint, San Giovanni. And though Galveston may not boast famed dishes like New Orleans's oysters Mosca, perhaps the most accessible connection to this town's Italian heritage 
can be experienced through its restaurants. Gaido's has been cooking Parmesan-crusted snappers since 1911, while Mario's is about to enter its sixth decade of serving pastina soup on the seawall. And despite the fact Tropia's is long closed, its memory and those of other stores have been memorialized at the Galveston County Historical Museum and in a book by architectural historian Ellen Beasley. She and photographer Betty Titchich had the foresight to document them in the late 70s. I started interviewing and talking to people, and I thought, you know, this was a part of Galveston that's kind of overlooked, because the emphasis at that time, and this is true of all communities in their preservation programs, especially the, start with the big buildings, the important, quote, important buildings associated with the important people. I felt sorry for the little buildings because I just thought they were so wonderful and they really needed some attention. Ellen argues that corner stores anchored their community's streets, provided social gathering places for neighbors, and that while changing circumstances caused them to close, many of their buildings remain. For instance, while Sunny's incarnation as a poultry market may have been short-lived, its exterior tin awning and upstairs apartment remain as architectural witnesses to its past. But if there's one business on the island that provides a spiritual link to these old stores, it's Maceo Spice, where a couple of summers ago I chatted with second-generation owner Ronnie Maceo. You know, this is probably as close as you're going to get to the old days. You know, my part of the family came here in 1903. Uh, we came from Palermo, Sicily to uh, New Orleans. My grandfather got here, I think it was... 29, 28 or 29. Ronnie's uncles, Sam and Rose Maceo, famously dominated the island's nightlife well into the 1950s through such hot spots as the Studio Lounge, Turf Athletic Club, and Balinese Room, whose stages hosted performers like Sophie Tucker, Peggy Lee, and Mel Torme. But while the family would eventually enjoy a profitable second act in Vegas, this spice shop is the only business left on the island bearing the Maceo name. Founded by Ronnie's father in 1944, it started as a seafood company that supplied Galveston's restaurants. Yet their spice offerings proved so popular, they ultimately became the business's main focus. The spices was the, the part of the business that was the best part of the business. So we just ran with it. You know? And now, my spices go all over the United States. And we do, we actually got 32 blends that we produce right here on, on this island. Beyond barbecue rub and crab seasonings, shelves are heavy with jars of red sauces, pastas, oils, and lavazza coffee. Best of all, back in the 90s, Ronnie added a fully stocked deli counter, where in addition to meat and cheese, he serves muffaladas, a round sandwich smeared with olive spread, garlic, ham, cheese, and salami. He tells me their recipe for this working man's French Quarter staple was brought with them to Galveston through his father. When my dad was born, 1127 Bourbon Street, what he did was everybody had to go find something to do to bring home something to put on the table at night. As, as my dad says, they used, to make, they used to make them and they would go sell them to the individual little grocery stores. My father contributed the muffalata to a little beer joint that I won in a Boo-Ray game. And um, we just started making them. We've been making them ever since. You know. Sunny's Place has also served muffaladas of their own making now for over 30 years, 
And while old schoolers quibble over whether or not they should be toasted, Richard offers both classic and grilled options and tells me their house-made olive salad draws on his grandmother's memory. My grandmother used to make olive salad off a tree that was in the backyard. She would just, she, she had her own olive tree. And I remember uh, my brother had gone dove hunting and had... Uh, uh, my grandmother had fried the uh, dove in the, a skillet with olive oil, and uh, she, uh, as a side dish, she had made the olive salad and uh, put it on the side. But it, you know, it made the, uh, uh, yeah, it brought out the flavor of the dove, of course. You know, it, it's, 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 you have to appreciate those, those things and, and, and knowing where they came from. And uh, I think that's what, uh, that's probably the success of this business is because it's like people walk in here and they look around and then it's like they go, this hasn't changed since the last time I was here, you know, which was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And it's like, oh, well, the, you know, the food tastes the same. And it's, it's, it's you know what it is? It's like the, the show with Mad Men when uh, the lead, uh, John Hamm's character was talking about nostalgia. And he said, nostalgia is what people ache for. Nostalgia is something Ellen Beasley cautions against. Her book documents the years of hard work Galveston's Italian-American store owners put into stocking shelves, managing deliveries, and balancing books. So what is it we ache for? I'd wager it's the sense of belonging these places provided. As an old family-run business, much of that communal spirit can still be found at Sonny's Place. And the past informs most everything here. It's in their spaghetti. It's in Junior's stories. And it's in the hundreds of faded photos covering its walls. One of which is a 1906 family portrait in a hand-carved frame that Richard calls to my attention. That's, that's the, 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 uh, my, my grandmother's side of the family. That's, you know, that picture was taken in about 1906. And you look at the frame, the frame's probably hand-carved. And the people in that picture, when they had to, take, you know, they had their hopes and dreams come to America. To put it in some kind of perspective, that's before the Wright brothers flew and before the Titanic sank. And you, you just, you, you try to sit there and think about that. You'd wrap your mind around that kind of history and that time period, and and to make that, and to make that jump to another country, not knowing what, you know, you hear stories, but you really don't know what it is to when you come over here. They didn't speak English. My, my grandparents didn't speak English when they came over here. Can, you know, could you really, if, if you had to pack up and leave right now and your only choice to go was China, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to read anything. It's like, you know, could you do it? <laughs> I don't know if I could, but Galveston is certainly a richer and tastier place thanks to those who did. It saddens me to report that Ronnie Maceo died shortly after beginning work on this piece. Maceo Spice will continue in the capable hands of his daughter, business partner, and best friend, Concetta Maceo. My thoughts are with her and all who loved Ronnie. A version of this episode was initially produced and shared through the Southern Foodways Alliance's podcast, Gravy. Thanks to the fine folks there, and if you like stories like this, I encourage you to find and follow Gravy wherever you listen. Also visit southernfoodways.org to learn more about their work and consider becoming a member. Thanks as well to all who spoke with me to make this segment happen, and to you for listening. 
Now, if you like this episode and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it'd mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krause and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.